You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there to the second episode of my uh, two-part series on William Peast and uh, the New York City detective who was ratting out his fellow officers to John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano. Uh, I got with me my friend Steve St. John, and Steve spent some time in the federal penitentiary with Mr. Peace, the former detective, and, and he's got some really interesting and, and sometimes funny stories to tell. Would that yeah. be correct? Yeah, he was, a, he was a funny guy. He was a funny guy. You're a funny guy. Funny? Yeah, you're funny. I think funny you're funny. How? Well, you know, you're, you're, you make uh, me laugh, you know. No, no, no. Really. You know what I mean. You're funny. Oh. You know, I'm just kidding. You yeah. know, you're like funny, you yeah. know, Steve. Yeah, funny how? <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, you're like funny. We better move on. What are you pulling a Joe Petsy on me here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, you think I'm Henry Hill? Yeah. <laughs> and you're uh, Tommy Two Guns Sloan or whatever his name was? I don't know. We have those cool nicknames, don't they? Anyhow, wiretappers, uh, He's got some really good stories for this second part about Mr. Peace's time in the penitentiary and, and their interactions there. And he also was was in the joint with uh, one of the other kind of uh, principals in this situation, a guy named uh, Joe Butch Carraro. Is that you remember how you pronounce that last name? Correo. Correo. So I always struggle. You guys know, you wiretappers know, I always struggle with some of these Italian names. And I've got this peckerwood tongue that sometimes can't get my tongue around those vowels and spit them out all wrong. I, I hope no Italian people of Italian extraction uh, uh, take offense. And, and when I say Italian, why, well, just remember that's, you know, I don't mean anything by it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're supposed to say Italian, but uh, sometimes I say Italian. That's like in my, my movie. You know, I made this recent movie, and that's where Steve and I got together, actually. Just before I made that movie, Brothers Against Brothers, the— uh, Savella Sparrow War, I had met Steve through a mutual acquaintance, and Steve is, uh, Steve and I were on the wrong side, uh, the opposite side, shall we say, uh, I shouldn't say the wrong side, there's no right or wrong, there are skillful ways of doing things, and there's unskillful ways of doing things, <laughs> and so, the side you pick, the side you pick, and, and so we both chose different sides, and, and when I first met him, he didn't, I knew who he was, and I'd seen his car, and he knew where he lived, and Knew what he looked like and knew where he worked and I knew a whole lot about him. Uh, and uh, he didn't even know, have any idea who I was and because some nice young FBI agent had come to the intelligence unit and asked us for some help because they were wanted to follow a guy around that they were working a case on. And, and it was Steve St. John. He knew people. And so, you know, whenever we got somebody you might make a case on that knows somebody— in that life, why you kind of go balls out after them, you know. That's uh, that if anything that uh, if you made any mistake, it was knowing all those other people. Otherwise, nobody might have paid too much attention to you. But you know what they wanted to do, don't you? Probably so. They wanted to turn you. That's what they wanted to do. But you know, he didn't turn. Uh, he did not. Right. He did ten solid years. Is that correct? That's correct. Ten solid years, man. That's that's a long time, but he's got some great stories, and, and he's turned his life around. Uh, he and I have been meeting for coffee about uh, at least once a week, it seems like, or breakfast or something. And You know, uh, when I was making this movie, I said, Steve, 
I need some help with this. Uh, I need a stripper because we had some reenactment scenes. I wanted a real deal stripper. I had some police women who would help me, but they uh, they wouldn't really. I, I needed a, a stripper to uh, to uh, act like she was going to give a lap dance to an undercover cop. He said, "You want a stripper? I'll get you one." So you know, we had a stripper show up at our uh, reenactment screening that day. Uh, I said, Steve, you know, I'm looking for an older car, and I'm having a hard time. I'm having people that have them, but they don't get back to me, or they're the wrong kind of car. And he said, you want an older car, like a 70s car? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I know a guy. He's got 30 of them. I said, what the hell, man? <laughs> Who is this guy? Is there anybody you don't know? I said, well, let's go to the Waffle House up there, uh, uh, kind of not too far from his house, uh, kind of for his convenience. And and uh, so we meet at the Waffle House. He knows everybody in the goddamn Waffle House. I mean, is there anybody you don't know, dude? I haven't met him yet. <laughs> oh, yeah, you haven't met him yet. All right. You're a funny guy, ain't you? <laughs> there we go. There we go. There we go again. So um, that's how we got together. Now, don't forget to hit me up on my Venmo app, uh, Gangland Wire. Buy me a cup of coffee or a um, shot and a beer. Or Starbucks coffee, you know, I like those Starbucks lattes. I know they're kind of expensive, about four bucks or so, but you know, we got to keep this podcast rolling, and, and uh, I need some some coffee here. Uh, now I'm just drinking old homebrewed coffee. Oh, and and after you hit me up on that Venmo app, or or if you don't want to do that, or you don't have Venmo, go to my shop page on ganglandwire.com and hit the donate button. Hit the donate button, $25 or more will get you a copy of my old movie, Gangland Wire, documentary, story of the skimming from Las Vegas casinos out of Kansas City, or the the most recent movie that I just finished, we showed at a sold-out Mafia Film Festival here in Kansas City, showed it three times that week, and and everybody seemed to love it, called Brothers Against Brothers, the story of the Savella Spiro War. And also got my book out there, and I'll, I'll, I'll send you a Kindle copy of that book or a gift certificate for a Kindle copy of that book if you send me $25 or more. If you send me more, you know, I'll give you one of these cool Gangland Wire coffee cups and, you know, all the books and movies I've got. And, and you send me a lot more, why well, I'll send you, I'll figure out something else I can do for you. I'll take you on a personal tour of, of mob sites here in Kansas City if you want. I've done that several times. But without further ado, let's get on with the show today. Now, to recap, uh, John Gotti, you're all familiar with John Gotti, aren't you? And Sammy the Bull Gravano. I know if you put up on a a Facebook page, a mob-centered Facebook page or mob group, anything about Sammy the Bull Gravano, it's just one comment after another, rat, snitch, and uh, uh, mob fans hate Sammy the Bull and love John Gotti. So, you know, we're going to talk about that because uh, Steve knows quite a little bit about that interaction after serving some time with uh, with former Detective Peast. December 1990, U.S. attorney put a bug inside of an apartment above the Ravenite Social Club. And John Gotti thinking he was slick, had got an elderly woman who lived up above the club to vacate her apartment periodically when he asked her to, and he and Sammy the Bull, who was his underboss, or would become his underboss after they killed Paul Castellano, would go up there and they would meet other people and they'd talk business. And, and John Gotti, you know, it was, it was a good microphone. 
they had it in the VHS player, sitting in her VHS player, sitting right in the little living room. It was one of those little New York apartments. It was only like a room and a half or two rooms. And, and it was wired into a telephone line. It was wired to the the uh, uh, electrical power source that came into the uh, VHS player, so you didn't have to replace the batteries. You didn't have to worry about any interference because it was going out over the air. It went right on a telephone line. Uh, on a wire right back to FBI headquarters, and, and John Gotti likes to talk. He likes to talk a lot, and, and they heard a lot of stuff up there, and they ended up charging a whole lot of people uh, off that one little hidden microphone, and specifically the murder of Paul Castellano was included in in those indictments. And After the indictments came down, they got Gotti and, and Sammy the Bull and guy named Frank Locasio and, and several others, and RICO charges and murder and racketeering and extortion and all the, the usual suspects, a parade of horribles for, for the defendants. Um, they had a bond hearing, December the 14th, 1990. And the FBI agents play tapes in that bond hearing trying to show that these guys could be a flight risk and what, what horrible criminals they were and how dangerous they were and how they may go out there and try to intimidate witnesses or kill witnesses even. And, and, and one of the tapes they played was John Gotti talking to another underling, I think, and probably was Locasio, as he was kind of one of his confidants at the time, about Sammy the Bull, who wasn't there. Now, you know, we all at work will be bad-mouthing the boss when the boss ain't there or bad-mouthing somebody else in the unit or the, the division or, or where we work in, in our office when they're not there. There's always somebody that, that's going to be on the wrong end of that office gossip. And in this case, it was, you know, Sammy the Bull because he wasn't there. You know, if, if you take part in that stuff and, and you bad-mouth people who aren't there, I'm going to tell you something, folks. When you aren't there, somebody's bad-mouthing you and, and making fun of you. So that's that's kind of human nature. I, I try not to participate in that too much. Uh, it just uh, I don't like putting somebody down at, at their expense and trying to make myself feel better. But that's my little editorial comment for the day, uh, Gary's wisdom, uh, how I live my life. But here's what he said about him. He said things like, you know, he thinks he's building a fucking army within an army. You know, he's got all that, and, and he ain't giving me anything. And complaining about Sammy the Bull, and, and Sammy the Bull had, was smart. Uh, Gotti, Gotti was more of a street guy who was a real charismatic leader, and men wanted to follow him. But he was more of a street guy, and he was a, he was a sick, degenerate gambler, and, and he was constantly gambling and losing money a lot, and... And the Bull, he figured out under Castellano that you needed to get involved with business. And Sammy the Bull, by this time, had gotten a concrete company. They said in, in the island of Manhattan, which we know is the most expensive place in the world to live, Sammy, the, you, if you wanted to buy concrete to build a building, even if you were Donald Trump back then, you had to buy it through Sammy the Bull Gravano. And so he was making a lot of money. And and uh, Gotti was was jealous, and and he wanted, of course, he wanted more and more and more because he always needed more money. Um, after playing that, you know, Gravano, they said, and you know, what I read, they said that he, you know, gave him hard stares and said something about you didn't have to do that, and and they say that that's that's the reason that he turned. But I think it's more than that, and we'll talk to Steve about that because he knew some other people in the in the penitentiary. 
uh, about that. But anyhow, that's how we got to where we were. And and so when Sammy the Bull turned, he gave up this William Peace, who was a New York City police detective that I talked about before. And, and he he had been giving information to Gotti all along and, and burned, uh, well, the first one, he burned some bugs that were in Sammy the, Bull, Sammy the Bull's uh, club and his uh, uh, construction company office. And he, he burned other people, and they just couldn't figure out who it was. If you remember, they had four clues, and they, they were he was maybe a cop, he was maybe a golfer, he was maybe a cousin of somebody's, and he was maybe a lawyer. And from that, that FBI agent, he was really a, a dogged FBI agent, uh, figured out who it was, and we talked about that last time. Now, Steve, uh, you've heard about what, what I learned you know, from public sources why Sammy the Bull turned, because Gotti was bad-mouthing him behind his back. But I have a little bit of a hard time believing him. It was just because he was bitching about him behind his back. That's not that unusual activity among guys like this, is it? Oh, you always have somebody talking about you. I mean, that's common. You leave the room, <laughs> leave the room and they start talking about you. People say that when they went to jail that day, you know, that uh, Gotti told Sammy the Bull, he said, listen, you're going to take the heat on this. You're going to take it all because I really need to get back out there. People need me, but they don't really need you. So you need to take that heat and, and you'll be okay. And he couldn't believe it when he told him that. He said, you know, uh, in this business, he said, we get rich together and we go to jail together. He said both. He said, we just don't get rich and then dump the case on somebody else. And they claim that's what he did. Hmm. Whether it be or not, I don't know, but they say that's what made him flip. You know, I believe it because, you know, if, if Gotti told him that and then he didn't do it, you know, what's his life going to be worth? Nothing. Nothing, nothing. And and Gotti was more of a, a, a dynamic leader at the time, although uh, you were in a joint with some, some mother mob bosses that, that weren't real crazy about Gotti. Is that true? That's exactly right. So you were in, I believe you said you were in with uh, Tony Ducks Carollo and um, who was the other guy? Fat Tony Salerno. Fat Tony Salerno, who were my bosses in the five families in Manhattan. So they were peers of Paul Castellano, who I know they didn't, they nobody ever approved of Gotti hitting Castellano so he could get elevated to, to boss. He did that without the, the commission, shall we say, without permission, uh, is my understanding. I am not. I don't know if that's for sure. But what you were in the joint with some of these guys. Did you ever hear them talk about uh, Gotti? Yeah, they weren't happy. They're, they were the old school guys. You know, uh, Fat Tony, he just, he just shake his head because he knew that, you know, he was just out there too much and flashy clothes and just kind of thumbing his nose at the FBI, and everybody knows that sooner or later FBI is going to get you because they got too much money. And then Tony Ducks was a nice guy. I used to have coffee with him. He was a really good guy, too. And he same thing. He just, you know, the, they didn't like that new stuff, you know, flashing this and flashing that and thumbing your nose at them, you know, and that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, he even got the nickname out of the news at Teflon Don. I mean, this goes back to like the gangsters did in in the 30s, like Al Capone did in the 30s. And, and you know, that they had a lot of cover in the court systems and, and uh, FBI, and nobody was very sophisticated. The FBI didn't even pay attention to the mob back then, but they do now. 
and they do not like you thumbing your nose in their face, do they? No. They'll get you sooner <laughs> They'll get later. You. They'll I mean, get you. Know, you. They got all the money. Yep. As we used to say in the police department, we got the biggest street gang in the world when we were um, dealing with street gangs here in the city. They'd talk about their bad, the 31st Street dogs. And we'd say, well, we're, we're like the 63rd Street pig dogs because our station was on 63rd Street, and we got a bigger gang and a better gang than you do. <laughs> These kids would go, oh, yeah. I know. But, <laughs> but law enforcement has the biggest gang in the world biggest organization in the world to, and you just can't I, I used to steve i used to work these cases you know where it was on you or whatever mm. i remember thinking like you know if this guy only knew that the weight of the federal government and how much money and time and effort they'll spend to make you quit doing what you're doing and the only way you know at that point in, in person's life the only way you're going to quit it is if somebody forces you to quit it yeah and there's only one way to force you to quit it, and, and that's to step on your toes so hard that, that it, it hurts more to, to try to continue to do it than, than, than stop. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of the not so much to put somebody in jail as it is to, uh, to force somebody to quit doing what they're doing. And, and uh, you know, it's just uh, sometimes you have no idea. <laughs> you know, the famous statement is they can't do that. Yeah, they can't do that. I just look at them and shake their head. They can't do that. I could tell you stories that, that, like you said, like I told you one time, the guy that find the dinosaurs, and they put him in jail. They can't do that. They can do anything they want. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know. Tell me that story again. Then we're going to talk about uh, how how Gravano uh, was turned that day, and then we'll go back to tell you more about William Peace. But tell tell our listeners, tell these wiretappers out there that story about that that dude that got how many years did he get? Like seven? He, he only got. Uh, you mean the, the dinosaur the guy? That found guy? The dinosaur, yeah. He got ninety days. Oh, ninety. That's oh, all he got. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, but well, I mean, what's the deal with finding a dinosaur? They they wanted to make him a felon, and they did. Yeah. He was an anthropologist, yeah. And uh, I, I seen him one day, and I was getting close to getting ready to go home in '99. And uh, I uh, I t- was talking to him, having some coffee, and I said, "Well, how long you got?" He I said, "How long you got left?" He said, well, I'm, "I got ninety days. Ninety days? You're kidding me." I said, well, "What'd you do?" <laughs> he said, "Well, I found a dinosaur. I found a dinosaur." And, you know, you meet so many people that are full of it. You know, I'm thinking, well, this guy's got a, some kind of story. But I said, well, what are you talking about? Well, in South Dakota, he owned a museum. And uh, his girlfriend was out digging. She was an anthropologist as well. And uh, she called him up and she said, I found something significant. You need to get out here. So he got in his car and I guess he drove out the mountains where they were digging and sure enough, she found a significant find that uh, the more they dug up, the more they found. And it ended up being a T-Rex dinosaur. And uh, they put it together at a, at a cost of about 250000 back in his museum. And when they got the last bone put together, the uh, FBI come in and said, Hey, thanks a lot for putting our dinosaur together. And he said, What? He said, Yeah, this was on government land. You don't know no. this. He said, well, we give an Indian $5,000, and long story short, they said, no, it, it's government land, so they confiscated it, and, uh, and they ended up selling it for $12 million. 
McDonald's bought it, donated it to uh, Chicago Museum History, and they named it Sue, which was after the girl that found it, T-Rex named Sue, and his name was Roger Larson. And you can Google that anytime. Mm-hmm. It'll pop up quick. And it's, you know, and he's still shaking his head wondering what They can't what do that, huh? They can't do <laughs> they that. They can't do that. Yeah. yeah There's many and, a guy gone down because they, they can't do that. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> you know, they and he said he was going to sue him. So he went out of the country and came back in with more money than he was supposed to. So they arrested him and gave him 90 days to make him a felon. Now he can't even go out of the country. Now what? Oh, man. They can do anything they want. Yeah, really. That's uh Oh, well, like I said, like you said, they can't do that. Oh, yes, they can. So anyhow, that's uh, uh, one of the many, many prison stories we're going to hear from Steve is over the next few weeks, we'll keep getting together every once in a while and telling some prison stories. You, you up for that, Steve? I'm up for you it. you got some, too. Maybe man. we'll have some jailhouse nachos. <laughs> jailhouse nachos. You can tell us how to make them. Anyhow, let's go back to Sammy. How did Sammy the Bull come in? How did this happen? I mean, you always read about it, and people get all mad because he's a rat and a snitch, and everybody loves John Gotti. I'm, I'm not real clear about that uh, hero worship there. But uh, from what you said, Steve, I don't think he really had a choice. He had no choice. It was either die. It was either him or, or, or Gotti. That's like uh, um, Frank Culotta out in Las Vegas. It was either him or Tony Spilatro, what it came down to, because Spilatro was told you need to clean up your mess out there in Las Vegas, and and Culotta was part of the mess that that he had got into after these guys got caught on the inside of that burglary, uh, and and somebody was gonna gonna start talking out of that, and and so he came in, and, and Gravano, I think he was, you know, he was part of the mess that that Gotti had created, and he was gonna have to clean that up. So to me, they didn't really have a choice. Uh, there you just might as well kill yourself now, huh? But in the, in the fall of 1991, as tri- Gotti's trial grew closer, there's some woman called the FBI office that was handling the case, and the agent recognized her voice. I don't think he's ever said, nobody's ever said who it was, but obviously one of the Gravano um, relatives or confidants, probably a re- probably a blood relative, don't you imagine? Probably. And uh, coldest case agent that uh, Sammy the Bull wanted to meet privately with the agent. So, and here's how they do this. I don't know if this ever happened to you. If you saw this, Steve, uh, got any stories about this, let me know. But he's taken out of his cell at the Metropolitan uh, Correction Center in Manhattan, which is the federal place that they kept people there for, you know, going back and forth to trial and hearings and all that. And I guess if they had, uh, gosh, if you only got a 90-day sentence, they send you to a full-fledged penitentiary also, huh? They yeah. don't have a jail they keep you in. Like if you're in the county and the state, you just go to the county jail for 90 days. Uh, but anyhow, they, they pulled him out of his cell for a handwriting exemplar. So there's a good reason to pull him out, kind of a cover. But afterwards, instead of taking him right back to his cell, he was taken into a jury room because the courthouse was, like, attached to this somehow. And took him to this empty jury room, and there's an FBI agent and the U.S. attorney, a guy named Bruce Mao, M-O-U-W, who was prosecuting um, Gotti in this case, and it was to be Gotti's last case. And and uh, they talked to him, and, and Gravano said, you know, he said, uh, uh, I got a lot to tell you guys. And, and one of the agents that was there would later say that he, he said this. He's like uh, Johnny Cochran here. He got a little rhyme. He says, if I talk, I walk. Uh, and as a kind of a teaser, he described the exact scene 
and how it went down when Paul Castellano was killed. And that was kind of like the holy grail to solve uh, the murder of a mob boss in New York City. That, that would be one that the U.S. attorney could could stick in his, a feather he could stick in his cap, don't you think? Yeah. Solve the murder of a mob boss. That would be, that'd be huge. A few days later, they you know they adjourned and sent him back to his cell and got together with probably had to go all the way up to the attorney general's uh, himself and and you know who was who was in charge of of this under the attorney general was Bob Mueller who famous Bob Mueller Mueller mm-hmm. Mueller Mueller I Mueller. think Mueller Bob famous Bob Mueller he was over the criminal division of the entire U.S. attorney's office and so he had been involved in this decision. Uh, he can't take down Trump, but he sure took down John Gotti in the end, or his people did. Uh, a few days later, these guys, uh, the agent and Bruce Mao, came back and said, "You know, here's what you got to do: you got to testify in a variety of different trials, at least for the next couple of years. But you also have to take a conviction that had a, has a maximum sentence of 20 years." Because I mean, this guy seemed like Sammy the Bull. How many murders did he? Did you ever read that, Steve? They say 19. 19 murders. I mean, this guy was, uh, he was a killing machine. He was killing, uh, once he kind of became the underboss especially, he went and, uh, I'm not going down through all the names, but he, he cleaned up some old business and, and took care of some grudges because he could then. He was a cold dude, man, and uh, but he'd have to take this conviction for at least 20 years. And, and when they say a maximum of 20 years, he never served 20 years. I think he served maybe, do you remember, Steve? Five. Five. He served five years um, in some kind of a snitch prison somewhere. Probably, I think there's one out in uh, uh, San Diego. Yeah, but you know, I read, this is kind of ironic, that, uh, you know, first of all, being a snitch or a rat, I, I absolutely don't approve of that. That's a personal opinion. Whatever yeah. he chose and why he chose it, you know, is is his business, I guess. But to me, you know, that that's the you know, if you if you do the crime, you like they say, you got to do the time, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But I read where they went to they went in the middle of the night to pick up Sammy the Bull, and the guard told them, "Oh, you're here to pick up the man," and they said, "Yeah." And they went and got Gotti and bought Gotti out there. <laughs> and then Gotti said, what, what is, what's this shit? And so he knew then yeah. that they came to get Gravano. He yeah. said, that ain't the one. And so they, he knew then yeah. that Gravano was rolling on him. Yeah. That, that moment. That's exactly, that's what I heard too. That's exactly how it happened. They said they were taking Gotti back and, and they, I, he must have looked down at the papers and said, oh, it's for Gravano. And then he knew. He knew. And they're supposedly taking him out to another prison that normally they would take him to if you want to transfer somebody in upstate New York. But, you, you know, you're waiting for trial. You're not going to take somebody out to They took him to FBI New York. headquarters. Exactly. Uh, uh, oh, man. And, and they said Gravano could hear Gotti yelling, you know. You're oh, a I, fucking bet. Rat, yeah, I bet. You he know? <laughs> and he, they said that he, he just, one of the agents that was there said, you know, he he just was stoic on the way out, and and he looked up at this one agent. And he said, "It's kind of an interesting little tidbit from this FBI agent." He said, "You know," he said, "Where are you from?" 
and this agents and you know, like FBI agents there from all over the United States. And you know, here we are in New York City. Sam and Gravano has probably never been out of New York City except to go to Atlantic City or maybe down to, to mm-hmm. Florida or something, and especially never to Iowa. And the agent says, well, I'm from Iowa, and you know, New York, you know what New York people think of us from the Midwest, yeah. from Missouri or Iowa. They think we're all a bunch of rubes and hillbillies mm-hmm. and hicks, and but they also think that they were probably pretty honest. It's yeah. not the same as those cops and law enforcement people back east has been my experience. And and he said, well, he said, if I'm going to start trusting somebody, I might as well be somebody from Iowa. <laughs> so I thought that was yeah. kind of an interesting little uh, tidbit. So they take him to an FBI office, and they end up taking him to a motel, and they start hiding his family. Got to take his family and, and hide them, too, because this is, I mean, this is too huge. Extreme, extreme security precautions, and there was a lot of potential breaches during this next few weeks when uh, Gotti's uh, has figured this out. But uh, one of the early questions that this U.S. attorney had, uh, Bruce Mao, was, "What's this? who is this detective that's been snitching to Gotti? He said, because he knows from that wire that that was one of the first things that the guy told Gotti was that there were bugs inside of Gravano's office and his uh, uh, at his club and the office at his business. And so he knows that he knows. And, and so he tells the story that, you know, uh, yeah, the guy's name was William Peace, which they knew by this by this point in time, they knew or they, they knew who it was, but they just really didn't have enough to, to make him on it unless he confessed. There was no you know, all cash money, they just gave him cash, and they could say, you know, you got a lot of money, you had access to this information, but if nobody talks on the other who got this information, he, you know, he's going to walk on it. But he said, yeah, he said, God, he paid him $500 a week, said he paid him as much as $10,000 if he came up with a really good tip, and he named Joe Butch Carrero, this George Helbig, and Pete Mabus is all involved in this situation. If you remembered when the agent, he ran this down and, and he figured out that that Joe Butch and, and Carrero and George Heibig were the first ones that were talking to Gotti about who this snitch was and what he could tell them. And, and then he ran down the cousin, Pete Mabus, and then from Pete Mabus, they ran down uh, uh, William Peace. Uh, 1993, February, uh, Former detective William Peast, who had retired by this point in time, you know, he, he, uh, Steve will tell you a little more about uh, what what he said was why he he did this. Is uh, but he got seven and a half years for selling confidential information to William Peast, and and so uh, you were. Where did you first meet uh, former detective Peast, and what did you think? I mean, did you know he was a cop, or what, what, I mean, it was in Yankton, South Dakota. What, what's the name of the 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 facility up there. Yankton, South Dakota. Oh, just Yankton, FCC Yankton. It used to be Mount Marty College, and then they turned it into a prison. Oh, so is it more like a, is it a lower security? Lower security, because I went from a higher security, and I put in to go to a lower security because I wanted to become a baker and go to college, and that's the only place they had that program. Oh, really? So you were able to get transferred yes. up there. Kind of cold up there in the winter, ain't it? Yeah, like 30 below. <laughs> really? So anyhow, you uh, you get up there, and so they have put Mr. Peast in that in Yankton. Yes. I wonder why he, he was a lower security. I guess he was a low security well, kind of guy. Reason, you wouldn't put a guy like that, you know, in a high security. The, no the reason, reason he was put up there is because supposedly 
and, and I, I beg to differ on this, but on paper, Yankton, South Dakota is a medical center too. Yeah. And it, it, it's really not. It, it's no different than a regular place, but they sent him there because of his leg. Oh, yeah. He, had, he only had one leg. Right. He had that leg. If you remember, folks, I talked about this. He got hurt in a car wreck, got a $1.4 million settlement from the lawsuit, and was still ratting out the New York Police Department <laughs> to uh, got him. But uh, his leg was taken off at three operations. It was taken off almost up to his hip. Uh, it, was, it was above his knee. I'm, uh, at least that's what I read. So that's why he was up there. Uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, no, that's fine. That, that's so fine. you what? You met him in the bakery. Yeah. Well, he wasn't. You know, he he came to me one day, and because I was a head baker, which means I had three other bakers that worked below me, and you know we'd put the the three meals out that yeah. day, and then we'd be off two days. So it was a sought after position, and uh, he came to me one day. He said, you know. My name's Bill Peast, you know, and, and uh, he says, I, I, I don't have anything to do. They got this leg. They got me on medical. He said, is there any way that you can get me over in the baker bakery? And he said, I'll, I'll teach you some tricks. Trust me. I said, well, how are you going to teach me any tricks? He said, well, I used to bake at the Waldorf Astoria. Oh, really? Well, you can't get any better credentials than that. Yeah. So I went to the, the cops in, in, uh, in the bakery, I mean, in the chow hall, and I said, listen, I got a guy that's related to me, because you had to always just lie to get something done. And I said, you know, he used to work at the Waldorf Astoria. No, kidding. I said, yeah, I can get him over a few hours during the day, and he can teach me how to make some stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's no problem. I'll sign. I'll sign up. Yeah. You know, so he signed him <laughs> off to be able to come over there every day. Or the days that I worked. Yeah. And so he came over there, and, and uh, he did. He taught me some techniques that I, I would have never learned because they don't teach you all that yeah. fancy stuff in the joint. But he uh, he knew every trick in the book, and, and he was a really nice guy. He knew his business. He I mean, he could make a, a cake four or five foot tall with no problem. And that's just what, you know, you could tell that he, he was a professional baker. Interesting. So now... Uh, How'd you start learning? You start learning about his background, I guess, by then. Because in a penitentiary, you don't bring somebody in close to you and do something no. for them unless you know a lot about them. Because you don't want right. to bring some snitch in close to you. Because right. I'm sure, Steve, that you were pretty square during the, your time in the joint, but you still got to do certain things to survive and to have a few extras. And, and uh, oh, absolutely. And, and so you don't want to bring somebody in that's just looking to rat you out in order yeah. to get some something off. Oh, the only thing he could have told on was us stealing out of the kitchen. Yeah. That ain't no big deal. Yeah. But uh, no, he uh, he came to me one day and he said, you know, he said, I, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. And he said, no, personal. I said, okay. So we went out in the chow hall and got some coffee and sat down. He said, now, when I tell you this, he said, you can do whatever you want. He said, I think we, we became friends. And, and, I, and, you know, he said, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. He said, a New Yorker magazine just came out. Yeah. And it's got me on the front cover. I said, okay. And I said, what's the problem? I said, did you tell on anybody? Because if you told on somebody, then that's a problem. Yeah. You just have yeah. to go on down the road. He said, no, I'm a cop. I said, you're a cop. Are you a cop now? He said, no, 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 I was a cop. He said, I'm, I retired. And then he went on and told me the story uh-huh. about him being in a wreck. And, and he was actually off duty, but he had a squad car. 
and, and he got hit on the one of the bridges in, in uh, New York, and he lost a leg. Well, he kind of expected the, the, the uh, police department to let him retire with full pension, with no taxes, and he was going to sue him and get a few million dollars. He sued for, I think, $8 million. Yeah. And he said, you know, he said they wouldn't let me retire. So he says uh, the only thing I could do is he, he said they put me on this squad, the organized crime squad, and he said they put me on this uh, uh, to protect this jury. And he said I was just very, very unhappy with the police department. So he said my cousin knew some mob guys and, so he came to me and asked me, hey, we need a name, any name, and that's how it started. So he oh, would, he worked up to that, you yeah. know. Because he, he, he was, like, doing stuff all along is what I read. And another thing that I, actually, I read that New Yorker article. is a pretty comprehensive article. And uh, he was, um, uh, I didn't really, it didn't say he was in his squad car. Now, folks, if, see, he wanted a duty-related pension, which Steve said it's uh, tax-free, which if you had a, if you're duty disabled in a duty related situation or accident or you know intentional, you're shot or something, when you retire, they'll give you eighty percent. At least in Kansas City, it's probably might even give you a hundred percent of your pay, the the last pay the last year you were on, uh, and it'll be tax free. They don't tax that. It's like if you get a settlement on a personal injury case, that's not. Uh, 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 ta- that's all tax free. Anything that's for uh, injury is tax free from the uh, feds. So that was huge to to get a duty disabled pension. And not only would it be a higher pension, but it'd also be tax free, which adds another twenty five percent onto your money. And, and I guess he was mad that they wouldn't do that. And I didn't really realize he was in a squad car. If if he's in a squad car, although he was off duty, taking his wife and his mom to. Uh, I think it would it would have been a little easier for the pension board to grant him a mm. duty related disability. Um, and Steve was asking me about that, and I've been on the pension board here in Kansas City, and, and pension boards, uh, short of you know taking money out and giving it to yourself, you can do a lot of stuff. I mean, if you if the board as a whole votes to give somebody a duty related pension just because, and I've seen it done here in Kansas City. Uh, just because you want to, because you think the guy was some kind of a hero, and even though he wasn't on duty and it wasn't duty dis, uh, duty related particularly, I remember a guy that broke up a fight in a bar and got shot in the face with a shotgun and, and blinded him, and they gave him a duty related disability. But yeah, you know, he was out in the bar drinking and, and part of this whole crowd, and and so, uh, but you can do that kind of thing. It's like the that's why the mobsters. Uh, that's why they wanted to kill Jimmy Hoffa because. Because at that point in time, they had control of the central state's pension, Teamsters Pension Fund, and the pension fund can do whatever they vote to do. Um, and if they squander the money and make bad investments, that's, you know, just, you know, well, we, we made, a, made, made a mistake. And, and so uh, they could have done that, but they didn't. I guess I can see why he was mad at him. He was in a uh, police car. He had a little more of a leg to stand on. So anyhow, he's uh, he's baking with you. I can't. I got a bakery story. Uh, uh, you you may have. Is that the same place where uh, you made that special treat for everybody over a holiday? Uh, the pastries. No, that was a higher level than that FCI was Wasika. Okay. All right, but, so that's uh, a pretty good one. He he made everybody in that prison happy for one day. See, yeah. folks, when you got a good cook in a institution like that. 
you got a good cook. It keeps everybody happier, happier yeah. and calmer and less likely to fight. If you've got a crappy cook and crappy food, then you got a little more trouble. Would you agree Shit's with that? Shit's going to hit the fan. <laughs> Shit will hit the fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a cook is, uh, I used to have a guy that was uh, over a treatment center, inpatient treatment center, and he had a cook, and, and the guy got a DUI, and, and he was looking at jail time, and, and my friend got hold of me. He said, you know, he said, we don't. this guy didn't have any money at all. And he said, I'll give you a little money. But I sure would like to keep him out of jail because when he's there at the treatment center cooking, everything goes so much better. <laughs> so yeah. after three or four appearances in court and much pleading on my part because he was a uh, – uh, a multi-repeat offender when it came to yeah. drinking and driving. We kept him out of jail, and he went back to cooking <laughs> down at the treatment center. So it's a, it's a pretty important job in, yeah. in any institution, whatever kind of institution, well, whether it's a school or whatever. piece uh, tip on the cream puffs. Okay. Well, so, what, what, tell them about the cream puffs. Oh Yeah, I, I was in uh, FCI Waseca, and they just opened it up. So a lot of guys was there that was unhappy. It was 30 below at Yankton, but it was about 40 below or 50 below at Waseca, Minnesota. So that was worse yet. And they didn't have much there. They had no recreation. They had nothing because they just opened up. So I'm the one that opened the bakery when they shipped me out of Yankton. Uh, I don't know what for, but it was in the middle of the night. Oh, that's another story. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do that story. story. That's another. We'll do that so, story, folks. But go ahead. With anyway, the, cream, uh, the pastry or the cream puff story. I, they were really unhappy, so I, I told the the the, uh, the the guard in the kitchen. I said, "Listen, if you let me do what I want to do, everybody will be happy. Trust me." And uh, he and I told him, and he, I said, "I want to make cream puffs for everybody. Cream puffs." He said, "Are you crazy?" So we got 500 people here, and it was a small amount. And I said, well, nice. I said that's okay. I said, uh, that, uh, I said you you hold the head, and, and I said, you know, let let me uh, blankety blank this horse. You just hold the head. <laughs> and he said, can you really do it? I said, well, yeah. All you you know on cream puffs. If anybody's out there that's that's knows bacon. All it takes is flour and water, yeah, and and that's it to make the shell and the cream. You know, you can make the whipped cream or you can make the Bavarian cream, and I choose the Bavarian cream, by the way. <laughs> and uh, so I made, you know, about seven hundred and fifty of these cream cream puffs, and then we get them, we cut them in half. I had one guy cut them in half with the chain on the on the uh, blade, so you couldn't take it with your room with you. Yeah, <laughs> and you just stand there and cut them in half, and then I'd have. Another guy fill them with an ice cream, you know. So we'd fill them with ice cream, put the top back on, put them in the freezer. So when the guys come to the line, it was nothing to it. They were on plates, sitting there, and I had hot, hot uh, chocolate, hot fudge chocolate. Oh, when they come to the line, I'd put that fudge on there and hand it to them, and, and they went to the line faster than they would normally. So it was really nothing to it if yeah. you knew how to do it. Warden come by and he says, St. John, you're killing me. <laughs> I mean, he ate three or four of them. I said, well, you know what? we got to keep everybody happy. Yeah. You know, just, just keep, the, keep the supplies coming. That's all I want. So, yeah, it's, uh, they, they can make, you, make things a lot easier on people. Yeah, really. All right. That's a great one. That's a good one. Okay, one, one more. Um, then we're going to get out of here. But uh, uh, you were also one, one, of, one of the other people that were involved in kind of the setup of how Connected Peace 
how, how they connected him with uh, uh, Gotti was a guy named uh, Joseph Vincent Joe Butch Creo. Is that I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Correctly, Creo. Yeah. And uh, you were in uh, one of your uh, facilities. You were in with uh, Joe Butch. Is that Rochester, Minnesota, Rochester? which is colder than Wasika, <laughs> So they kept sending me somewhere colder. I <laughs> they just all they across were punishing the me. top of the United States, Yankton, yeah. South Dakota, yeah. uh, Wisconsin, yeah. Northern Wisconsin, and uh, and Minnesota, Minnesota. Rochester. Oh my God! So anyhow, well, at least you had the Mayo Clinic up there if you got sick. Did right? have the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> anyhow, go ahead with the what, what? What was your interactions with uh, with this dude? Well, you know, you just don't. Like everybody knows, you don't go to a, a joint and and uh, and just bust in a crowd and say, "Hey, here I am." You know, let's be friends. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't work that way. But fortunately, this was my uh, seventh place. Okay, so you were a so, veteran. By the yeah, way. I was a veteran, and I knew a lot of people. Yeah, uh, I knew a lot of guys from New York that was down in Springfield. Fat Tony, uh, I was with. Uh, Lefty Ruggiero, which I made the Donnie Brasco oh, story yeah, about. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You were yeah. in the joint He was a good friend of mine, you? yeah. Cool. We've got to talk about him yeah. in our And uh, he was there. So I knew a lot of guys that knew a lot of guys. But when I entered Rochester, usually if somebody knows you, they'll meet you and, and get you stuff you need and whatnot. And I had a very, very dear friend of mine that I knew way before I came in named Frank Gagliano from New Orleans. He was a gentleman's gentleman. He was a great guy. And uh, I was friends with his son. Matter of fact, the day that, that they raided me, and uh, I'm not going to point any fingers. The day my guys raided you, yeah, the FBI yeah. agent. Yeah. And uh, my boys, Frank and Jack Gagliano, which were dear friends of mine, I had just taken them to the airport. They had been at my house for about a week up above the deli. So I took him to the airport, and, and, and the FBI and, and the squad was, was kind enough to wait till I came back, and then they raided me. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, their Didn't dad— Didn't have to break down your door. That's right. I didn't let him in. Because that was a hard door to break down. Yes, it was. That's why it was such a long wait. So I, Mr. Frank, I had, I had sent word down there. I said, they're trying to get you. You know, He said, I, I'm not doing anything. I said, well, whatever. I said, that's all they want to talk about. Because they interviewed you and oh, asked you yeah. a lot of questions about oh, Frank yeah. Gagliano yeah, yeah. right after that. All right, they that's said, that's that. all we want to talk about. Yeah. I said, well, I, they make a good mufalada, and that's all I know. Yeah. And so Mr. Frank, since that time, I guess they had arrested him and four or five guys from New York for 5,000 poker machines yeah, in the state a, of Louisiana. Is that video poker deal. We had the same thing in Kansas City. Boy, for a while, all these mob guys were into video poker and making yeah. some money out of it. But So he was there waiting for me, and he said, you told me. I said, I sure did. <laughs> so, you know, he introduced me around, and there was a couple of friends of mine that was there from Kansas City. And so, you know, don't take long to know people. So I'm walking the track one day, and I'm walking the track with this Joe Butch Corral. We became friends, and so we're walking the track. And this guy's about six foot eight, six foot nine. So, for every step he takes, I got to take about <laughs> take ten. Three, ten. So yeah. I'm like a like a slow like a jog, and he's walking. And so we're we're t walking and, and talking. You know, what are you going to talk about? You know, oh, it's nice outside today, and that fence looks a little bit taller. And so you know, I broke the silence. I said, "Hey, Joe," and this had been after I met him. You know, I knew him for about a month or so. I said, did you know a guy named William Peast? 
Boy, and he stopped dead in his tracks. He turned around and he says, where'd you get that name from? I said, well, I know him. How do you know him? <laughs> yeah. And he, I'm looking at him. I said, well, I was in Yankton, South Dakota with him. He said, yeah, I know him. I said, he was a cop, right? And he said, yeah, but how do you know? I, I was in there with him. I said, I had him in the bakery. He said, yeah, that's right. His name was AKA Baker. They called him the Baker. Yeah. And if you ever read anything about Bill Peast, they'll say AKA the Baker because he used to bake in the Waldorf Astoria. And prior to that, he was a guard at uh, Rikers Island. Mm -hmm. And he had told me all this. So Joe Butch said, wow, man, it's a small world. He said, yeah, he was on my case. And then he explained to me that, yeah, he says, you know, he said he retired and, and, and he was, you know, he'd been retired for several years and, and we thought everything was fine. And all of a sudden, Sammy the Bull flipped on everybody and they went and arrested the detective and said, come on, you're going to jail. So, you know, it was a. Uh, it was a small world. Small world. That is a small world. And uh, I think Kansas City is a small world, but I bet in that federal penitentiary system, it's it's a pretty small world, too. Yeah. Uh, so uh, tell us a little more about Joe Butch, if you could. Uh, I, I think he's dead now, and, he, and uh, you're not going to say anything. You're not going to give any secrets away. No, he, he, was, he was, like I said, a, he was a gentleman. Was he a likable he guy? Was, oh, yeah. He was a really nice guy. And the only problem with him is with his, he had diabetes real bad. And if you touch him, like grab him by the wrist, he just turned yeah. black and blue. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, and he started uh, painting up there. And he became a prolific painter because he didn't know he had these skills. So he used to go paint every day. What, what did he do? Did he do like landscapes or uh, like somebody's face? or He would uh, do faces. Or faces or? Uh, uh, you know, like New York skyline, oh, but really? he was good. Huh. You, you looked at it and go, wow, who did this? And he'd send them back. He had a couple of Italian restaurants on, on Mulberry Street, and he used to send them there, and they'd put them in the window and stuff. I mean, they were nice paintings. Yeah. And I said, man, Joe, you, you really know how to do that stuff. I said, I wish I knew how to do something like that. I'd send something to my daughter. And he says, well, he said, let's make her a jewelry box. So he made my daughter a jewelry yeah. box, wood with copper inside. It was beautiful. Huh. And it had her name on there, so... I sent that home, and he was just a really, really nice guy. Uh, but he was a tough guy. You know, he was I in his 70s, yeah. Yeah. and he was having problems up in his unit. Him and a couple of his buddies had some young guy up there. You know how yeah. young guys are going to try you. Yeah, was and it I, a motorcycle gang dude? Yeah, a motorcycle guy. Yeah. And I told Joe, I said, Joe, I'm not telling you what to do because you surely know way more than me. But I said, you know, the captain, every every penitentiary has a, like a chief of police, but they call him the captain. Yeah. He's a captain, and, and he's in charge of security and stuff. And I said, you know that guy don't like you anyway. I said, you got to be really be careful. And the next morning, one of his friends come out and said, well, Joe's gone. I said, gone? What do you mean? Did he die? He said, no. He said, but they, uh, he got into it with that motorcycle guy, and he cracked it with the chair. You know those old timers. They don't. They don't play. They're not going to take any anything off anybody. And so they shipped him in the middle of the night, put him in Learjet, and sent him to Springfield. And uh, I had told him, I said, "Boy, you don't want to go to Springfield. They'll kill you down there. Hey, they, you know, you're not going to get near the care that you do at uh, 
Mayo Clinic, obviously. Yeah, you you mentioned that to me. I we always thought I always thought Springfield was like kind of like the you know the good place for oh, prisoners no, they, to go. They closed that floor down for staph infection for many years. Oh wow! You had to go downtown to St. John uh, Memorial or Cox Memorial, which I've been to both. Huh. So you had another interaction with uh, you were in New York at this uh, cigar store. Uh, yeah, was, Joe Butch owned a cigar, a cigar store. store. It looks to me like it might be at 141 Mulberry Street, probably the, uh, uh, might be called the Three Little Inn or the Cigar Bar. I'm not sure. It's down on Mulberry. Anyhow, folks, it's down on Mulberry Street. Now, we're not sure if it's still there. That was about, what, what we figure about five years ago? Yeah, four years four ago. Four years ago. It was in 2015, and, and so... Uh, you knew that that had been his. Now he's he's deceased. Now I think yeah, he, he deceased, died yeah. from diabetes or yes. heart problems or something while he was still in the joint. He, I he either died in the joint or he died shortly after. They let him out. And I know. I know. Uh, uh, Lefty Ruggiero died after he was out for he about a year because I used to call him at his house about once a week. He wanted me to call his house and talk to him, and I did. Huh. So he lasted about a year, but he hmm. was a real bad smoker. Oh really? Yeah. Back in the day, you know. That's a that's a part that uh, was Al Pacino play him in the Donnie Brasco movie. Yeah, I think yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I thought. So anyhow, you were uh, you were in uh, Manhattan. You knew that uh, that some uh, was his stepson or his son ran the cigar store. It looks like on Mulberry one forty one Mulberry maybe. Uh, tell us a little, tell tell the wiretappers a little bit about that. Uh, I went in there one day and I I we was up there in New York, me and my family and and. Uh, uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to go in the cigar store and see if Joe's son is there. And uh, it was during the day, and it, was, it wasn't open. And I'm thinking, man, I said, I was, you'd think a business would be open. Well, he opens at night, 6 o'clock at night. Oh, really? Huh. So I caught him at night and went in there, and I explained to myself, I explained to him who I was and told him some things that he had that we would probably know that only somebody that knew him would know. And after I told him that, he, oh, man, he hugged me. And, yeah, that was my dad. I said, yeah. I said, you know, and then I told him about the detective. He said, yeah, he turned out to be a pretty nice guy. <laughs> you know, I mean. And that detective, he never snitched on anybody, No, he never did told he? on anybody. I'm kind of surprised because he, yeah. he probably, I mean, uh, you know, being a former detective, you don't really want to go into the penitentiary. You got to. Yeah. You're gonna have some some hoops to jump through, yeah, and it's, yeah. you could have some problems now if he didn't rat on anybody. The you probably didn't tell the, on anybody. The, the, the New York families probably had people around in the different federal systems that could at least, you know, it, it's just speak up for you. You know, in 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 uh, Leavenworth, we was in with I think there was about five cops. They called them, well, five. I don't know where the other two went, but they they called them the Marquette Ten, and they were cops that had was taking money from drug dealers. Oh, okay. And, I was in and, Chicago. Chicago, I remember, yeah. I remember that. And Mark they were up Leavenworth when I was there, and oh, really? nobody bothered them. You know, they were yeah. good guys. You know, one of them was named Smintech, and one of them was named Pena. Huh. I remember that, those you two know, names. Well, I'll have to research that in Marquette yeah. 10 and find yeah. out uh, more about that case, and let's do a podcast, and you can yeah. talk a little bit about being in the joint with them. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So that's, uh, uh, oh, <laughs> one other thing, folks, uh, from our friend Steve, before we get out of here. 
he had another little interesting interaction after he left that cigar store down in Mulberry Street or Little Italy, down by where Joey Gallo and Berto's Clam House and kind of, you know, where John Gotti had the Ravenite. And, I mean, that was Mob Central at one time. Now it's probably, it's all Chinese, that's what yeah, you're telling it's me. Yeah, it's mostly been there Chinese for a while. now. So you had another interesting little interaction down there. What what was that? Well, uh, we started walking, and I stopped in a store and seen a guy that I didn't know, and then come out and, a guy's waving at me, come here, come here. And I said, what? He said, oh, come here for a minute, come here. And my daughter said, go see him, go see him. That's that's Tony Danza. I said, well, I, I don't know whether he's Tony Danza or not. He looks awful skinny to me. <laughs> and uh, I went over and it was Tony Danza. Oh, really? Put his arm around me, he said, come on with me. Oh, okay. So we go in this store and come to find out he owned, owned this store with this older uh, lady. And it was a liquor store, meat, and and you know Italian stuff in yeah, there, and like a corner and, convenience store. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was a fancy one. It yeah. was, and he he told the lady, he said, "Who's this guy look like?" She looked at me and it looked like she seen a ghost. She said, "Cha cha." <laughs> I said, "Cha cha." Who's that? I said that was her husband. They called him the mayor of Little Italy. Oh, really? And his name was Cha Cha. <laughs> yeah, we and my up daughter started laughing. <laughs> I said, see, he wants my autograph. Yeah. I don't want his. So we took a bunch of pictures with him and stuff. And, and folks, he sent me one of those pictures, and Tony Danza was really skinny. I, yeah, he, I thought he, he was kind of well-built dude. He was about 120 pounds, and, wow. and that's what floored me because, you know, he used to be a, a, a boxer, yeah, professional boxer. Huh. And, uh, you know, he ain't no joke. He was a tough guy. Yeah. But you know, I don't know. Maybe he was sick. I, I maybe he was working. I don't know. Might but he was a skinny. Role. A lot of times, those guys will like go on these real strict diets and yeah. work out to to get down to for a particular. And he had just gone through a divorce. He told me so. Yeah. Well, that'll know. that'll take the pounds off. That'll I remember take it. Yeah. Take on it. the police department, we'd see these guys. I did the same thing. I shouldn't say these guys. You get divorced, and then all of a sudden you lose about fifteen, twenty pounds. Yeah. Get in shape, and then and then you end up getting married again. Then they, you put that twenty back on, and back then about on. another five yeah. or ten more. So yeah. on him it was probably the gal took all the money out of his pocket thinned him down but he was a nice guy all right very nice guy. this has been great steve i really appreciate you coming on and, and doing this and let's do some more shows you want okay to? all right great yeah. so folks uh, if you have a uh, problem with drugs or alcohol make your first call to first call or if you have a relative or a friend or somebody you care about that has a problem with drugs or alcohol Make your first call about them to First Call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. And, and don't forget to hit me up on Venmo, uh, Gangland Wire, and buy me a cup of coffee. A couple of Starbucks lattes would, would be much nicer. Of course, I'm just kidding you. And uh, Or a, a shot and a beer. I'm, I'm going to meet a guy Friday. He said, I'll, I'm going to buy you a shot and beer in person. And, and, of course, you know I don't drink, so I'll take me a uh, – get me a uh, – um, uh, uh, Diet Coke or, or something like that, but I'm going to meet this guy, and he, he's giving me a pretty sizable donation, so we're going to sit and talk about the mob for a while over at Kelly's. Kelly's we Kelly's in Westport's real famous Kansas City Tavern, and Steve, that's a tavern we turned into a strip that's club. That's right, that's right. <laughs> I remember that, don't you? I do. <laughs> Where Steve played a policeman. <laughs> that's right. An undercover policeman, that's of all right. things. <laughs> Your worst nightmare come true is an yes, undercover indeed. policeman. <laughs> Anyhow, so uh, 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 
and I've got my books out there. My, my one book, actually, I have two books. If you about the uh, uh, Civil War and around that time, it's called The Immortal Ten. It's about uh, a guy that got caught bringing some people up the Underground Railroad and got put in jail over here in, uh, in Missouri, and the story of his time in jail and how they broke him out. Uh, I've got uh, my other book is uh, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps and Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos and get the uh, Kindle version because I've hooked up the actual audio from the real wiretaps to uh, to different places in the book. You can just click on it and go listen to it. I'm working with a guy at the Las Vegas Review-Journal right now doing a podcast w- with him on just about Las Vegas and, and the skimming and, and uh, all the uh, activities that happened out there in the 70s. He wants some of those copies of some of those wiretaps to use. He's going to interview uh, Frank Coulotta, of course, and some of the other FBI agents out in Las Vegas, and uh, Bill Owsley from Kansas City here, who was a case agent over that whole case that they codenamed Strawman. I've also got my new movie, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, and my old movie, not so old, a couple, three years old, maybe five, I think, uh, Gangland Wire. It's all about the uh, how we got into the skimming from Las Vegas Casino and then the how that investigation developed. So uh, look for myself and Steve to come back one of these days and do some prison stories. And maybe we'll even tell you about how I was working in in charge of investigation and and we were working on him. Good night, folks. Good night, Steve. Good night. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. Casey.